Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to parents of children struggling with the effects of trauma and attachment disorders and the caseworkers, coordinators, and other professionals who support them. Today, your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Miriam Steele of The New School, who will be sharing information on her work with adoption and attachment. I am here with Dr. Miriam Steele um, from the New School and going to be talking with her um, about her work, particularly related to adoption. Um, And so, Miriam, welcome. Thank you, Karen. Delighted to be here. Good. So, Miriam, could you share a little bit about your background um, and and your work in attachment and adoption and how you came to this? Sure. Um, So I was doing a PhD in London, England at University College London uh, with Peter Fonagy, and I wanted to do a study looking at intergenerational patterns of attachment, the degree to which one's own childhood experiences might influence the way they parent the next generation. And so we started the London Parent Child Project, which was looking at a group of 100 mothers and importantly, 100 fathers before they were expecting their first babies. And we did the adult attachment interview with them, which had just come out onto the scene, Um, 1986, 1987. The adult attachment interview came out in 1985. Um, And that allowed us a very special opportunity to explore attachment states of mind within the adult. Up until that point, attachment was really focused on using the strain situation paradigm with infants between 12 and 18 months of age, and there wasn't a way of actually accessing the internal world or the states of mind, internal working models of the adults. So Mary Main um, published the move to the level of representation in 1985, and we wanted to, in some ways, replicate that study, but rather than doing it retrospectively, that is parents of six-year-olds and looking at their attachment Uh, narratives in the AI and connecting them back to their one-year-olds five years previously to their strain situations, we wanted to do it prospectively, namely to collect them in the last trimester of a first pregnancy and then see if we could predict the quality of the child's attachment to each parent uh, once their babies were born. And that London Parent Child Project was really one of the first Um, to look at that intergenerational link. Well, we found that there was um, about a 75% accuracy rate with which we could predict the child's attachment to each parent based on those interviews we did before they were born. And then we did the strange situations with the mother at 12 months, with father at 18 months. We followed the children up again at age five and age six, at age 10 and age 16. So it was quite an extensive longitudinal study. When I started that project, Peter Fonagy actually didn't know very much about attachment, so he suggested that I go and talk to John Bowlby at the Tavistock Clinic. And I first thought, I can't go talk to John Bowlby. It's John Bowlby. And he said, no, 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 no he'll say yes. He's, um, he's very open to people coming to see him. And at that point, 1986, there wasn't a lot of attachment work going on, especially in England. So he was actually rather pleased that... Um, there was this new research perhaps coming on board. So I used to meet with John Bowlby every two weeks and we used to bring him 
some of the interviews. We used to talk about some of the recent uh, articles coming onto the scene. Um, the main leaders or figures in the field used to send them him their papers. Um, and so he had like preprints of the latest work. Um, and it was around that time that he actually said um, early on, uh, Mary Main is coming to the Tavistock Clinic to do the training in the adult attachment interview. I think you should get on that course. And so um, that was in 1987, we, we joined um, that training, which really kind of set our careers off into that trajectory. And so wow. I used to go, I used to go, right, yeah, it, yeah. So if you touch me, you touch a little bit of bull because I was probably one of the, the few people in some ways to have had such direct contact um, with him. And so I was um, giving talks about this mm -hmm. intergenerational patterns of attachment study and gave the talk once. Um, and in the audience was someone called Jeanne uh, Kenya, who was the director at uh, Quorum Family of a special unit that specialized in hard to place children. So these were children who were hard to place because they were older um, in that four through eight year age range. And uh, the vast majority had suffered early adversity, um, mainly maltreatment. So mm -hmm. it had been emotional abuse or some sexual abuse and some physical abuse. Um, and so they appeared on the doorstep really of, of Quorum, who specialized in providing, um, for one thing, a gold standard of assessment. Um, you know, these were kids who'd been through the system, been through the statutory services, and now ended up um, at Quorum. And so she um, approached and said, you know, maybe we could do a better job of looking at the matches between what it is the parents bring and what it is the children are bringing um, and figure out, you know, can we predict some of, some of the disruptions? So Quorum has very few disruptions just because they do such careful work. Their home studies take about a year um, to do and they get uh, connected with the social worker um, who then ushers them through the entire process. At the time I was at the Anna Freud Center and I was um, training and then finished my training as a child psychoanalyst. And the Anna Freud Center at that time was a very special place um, where the training was full time. So from you know Monday morning till Friday evening, that's all we did was see patients, had reading seminars, there were um, more public meetings that we would um, attend. And one of my tutors there was Jill Hodges, who'd done a lot of work in adoption. She was um, part of the original team with Barbara Tizard on their follow-up of adopted children. And she was working at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, and one of the remits of that um, unit, um, their child care consultation team, was to assess children who would come from all over England to Great Ormond Street with the question around how parentable is this child? Um, is it a case where we can try and reunite the child with their biological family? Is this a case where some short-term or long-term foster care might be in order? Or is this a case that what's happened to this child and because of where the biological parents are at, it's actually best to think about a therapeutic um, residential environment of which there are now fewer and fewer. Chadwick is, is quite unique um, in offering that. And in that work, she developed something called the Story STEM Assessment Profile, which is um, a way of assessing children in that four through eight age range to try and get at something of their internal world 
at a time where you can't really do a strain situation because you don't even necessarily have the partner or the caregiver with which to do that sequence of being in a room together, parent leaving, parent coming back. All you have access to is where the child is at. So she was um, using the story stem assessments as a way of assessing the children and trying to figure out these placement um, decisions. So Jeanne Kanyuk brought my work in, or me, with the adult attachment interview, and Jill with the story stems. And we began assessing some of the adoptive parents or parents who were um, approved by the adoption panel to be ready to adopt. And then there was a stroke of amazing luck and the Sainsbury Family Trust approached Jan and said, um, we're interested, we've got some funds available. Um, can you put a study together that would be looking at attachment and adoption? And so that attachment and adoption study um, was born where we looked at um, a group of parents, some 65 parents who um, had been approved by their panel to adopt one of these hard to place children. Um, and then a group of 45 who um, had adopted their children within the first 12 months of their lives. But those children are now four through eight. So those were our comparison groups. So both had an adoption um, history, but of course one had much less adversity than the other because they were adopted in the first 12 months of their lives. Mm -hmm. so we did the AAI, this adult attachment interview with both mothers and fathers. Um, and then we brought the families back and we did the story stem assessments and some cognitive um, developmental measures as well. And what we were looking for was really um, the starting point for each child where they started off and now with this huge advantage of being placed in a permanent family, how did that change their internal world mm -hmm. um, was really our question. So comparing the two groups, those that were adopted early versus those that were adopted late was part of it. The other part was looking at each individual child and the impact of permanency um, on their internal world. So there were um, quite a few findings that we looked at. The other thing we did was something called the parent development interview, which is a little bit like the adult attachment interview, except that it is um, asking the parent to think about who this child is. So mm -hmm. rather than going back in time that the AAI does in terms of your childhood experience and trying to assess not so much what happened during your childhood, but what you make of those experiences, the parent development interview is trying to help you think about who this child is um, in different contexts. So maybe I'll just say a few words about the adult attachment interview because so many of our findings um, were um, indeed around that interview. So yeah. it's um, a rather amazing um, interview. And what Mary made, I think her starting point was really to think about, if we look at John Bowlby's writings and Mary Ainsworth's writings, um, what were some of the features that they thought about in how you get the attachment system revealed? What are some of the ways to prod it um, so that you can see it? And so separation in both the strain situation and questions about separation from significant caregivers or people in your lives, um, in your life, that's the way. Getting people to talk about that um, is a very compelling way because the human species can't exist on their own and we are actually built to have a relationship with someone else 
especially from early on. Uh, Donald Winnicott, this famous British pediatrician, said there's no such thing as a human infant, by which he meant there's only a mother and a baby. There's no such thing. You never just see a baby um, on their own. And so separating a mother and baby is actually an evolutionarily dangerous thing um, because the infant can't survive, nor can any of us really survive totally mm -hmm. on, on our own. Mm -hmm. So the AI comes in two parts. One part is um, really trying to get at what probably happened to the individual in their childhood experiences. Bowlby was quite emphatic that in order to understand um, where this person is at in terms of their attachment states of mind, we have to find out as best we can what probably happened to that individual in their childhood. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question is around orienting the person to tell me a bit about your childhood experiences. And the other thing the interview is aimed to do is surprise the unconscious. So it's, that's one of its very unique features. There's a set of questions that get asked that we don't normally ask people. And so even in our adoption sample where they have been talked to and questioned for an entire year, those parents were still surprised um, by our questions. Um, so one of those, for example, is to give me five adjectives or words that describe your early relationship with mother. And you tell the person, I'll give you a minute to think about them. And then I'll ask you why you chose the ones you did. And so we sit, we do that for mother. And then we say, so Karen, give me an adjective to describe your relationship with mother. Unpredictable. Unpredictable. So um, we would then go back and say, so when you think of a relationship as being one that was unpredictable, do any specific memories or incidents come to mind? And what we're looking for is not so much whether the constellation of adjectives is positive or negative, but do you have evidence for the ones you gave? If you said unpredictable, we are then going to be looking for some kind of memory or incident that backs that up. We sometimes get people who give a whole string of very positive adjectives, loving, warm, protective, caring. And yet when you ask them for specific memories, they're like, well, I can't really remember. She was just always there or something quite vague. So we're looking for a match between the overall semantic organization, those adjectives, and then the episodic, the memories that match with that. Mary Main referred um, in the construction of the AI to somebody called Bryce, who's a linguist, who talks about rules of conversation and the coding of the discourse, the narratives, the responses to the questions very much are um, interpreted in terms of the ways in which people speak. So there are some rules, for example, speaking just the right amount, not too much, not too little, having a manner that is respectful of the interviewer and to take into account that the interviewer knows nothing about your childhood. So um, what would your starting point be? Um, aspects, um, are you truthful, right? If you said caring, we're gonna look for some evidence um, that backs that up. So the, question, the interview then goes on and asks specifically about um, when you were upset as a child, what would you do? So that's another question that surprises the unconscious. We're not used to answering that. And again, if you gave these adjectives of warm, loving, caring, and then you convey that when you were upset, you used to go to the end of the garden and there was a shed and you used to hang out there by yourself, it's not really a match. As compared to if you gave that kind of a memory and you had said unpredictable, that could be, 
that that um, went together. We ask about illnesses and physical hurts. We ask about, do you remember your first separation from your parents? We ask if you ever felt rejected as a child and if your parents knew that you felt that way. Um, and then we ask about loss and trauma. We ask specifically about whether the individual suffered loss or trauma because it's really important for us when we then come to rate um, whether they have resolved those experiences. And then the next part of the interview is looking at what do they make of those experiences. And this is where the concept of reflective functioning was born. When myself, Howard Steele, Peter Fonagy, and Anna Higgett rated the 200 interviews from the Lennon Paired Child Project, we were very struck by how some people, despite facing adversity, had worked really hard to come to understand those experiences. And in fact, we found that if people had those adversities, but had a capacity to put themselves in someone else's shoe, in their parents' shoes, so someone else's shoes, and think about the thoughts, feelings, and intentions that they had um, when they were delivering their caregiving, they were able to break that cycle of maltreatment or adversity. Mm -hmm. Versus individuals who suffered adversity but didn't have this capacity they were almost um, certainly doomed. So something like 95% of them had children who were also insecurely attached. Mm. So the questions that we have embedded within the AI that um, are able to elicit a reflective capacity are, why do you think your parents behaved as they did during, during your childhood? And have your experiences in childhood had any influence on who you are today? You can't actually answer those questions without somewhere putting yourself in someone else's shoes. So we take all of this material and we, um, there's a whole series of ratings on probable experience, how loving, how rejecting, how neglecting you think this person's childhood experience was, and then some states of mind, how idealizing, how derogating, how, um, how angry the person is, how coherent is their overall transcript, and then another score for whether we think they've resolved loss or trauma, if in fact um, those things have happened to them. And we get um, three main classifications around um, attachment. One is the vast majority of individuals in the broader community, um, some 65% get classified as secure. These are individuals who are able to talk about their childhoods, whether they were good or bad, in some kind of coherent way. Then we get individuals who are dismissing, who very much want to push painful aspects of their childhood to one side um, and not engage and say, well, it was a long time ago, does it really matter? Um, or get there, interestingly enough, by being very idealizing. So the stories are, oh, she was wonderful, warm, she was just there for everyone. Um, but all of those examples, if they can't come up with them, are not about the parent. She used mm -hmm. to, um, you know, she was very involved in church and did the bake sales and helped everyone out, but not really about them. And then there's another group that are um, classified as preoccupied, where they're all, um, often very currently angry with the parent for things that happened a long time ago and unable to really separate those experiences from where they are now or are very passive, where it's really hard to get a sense of what they're talking about. And both those and the dismissing we see as defensive processes. Um, they're both in some ways enacted as a way of keeping at bay painful feelings that your parents weren't really there. 
in a sensitive and responsive way in the way that um, the secure autonomous individuals um, experiences probably were more aligned with. And then the individual also gets a classification of whether they were resolved or not with regard to loss or trauma. And there's a whole set of indices that way. Mm -hmm. So we did those AIs with the adopters. And one of the things we found was um, that even from the very um, first assessment that we did with the children, so that was within six weeks, usually around a month of the child being placed. So very, very early on, already the state of mind of the adoptive parent had an impact on the child. Wow. So if the child um, was placed with an adoptive parent who was secure, the parent in our parent development interview already sees the child um, as um, having less hostility, as being more warm, as less rejecting of the parent um, compared to those that were um, insecure or unresolved. One of the interesting groups was the unresolved group where one of the questions in the parent development interview is, um, where, how, well, how much support do you feel you need with this child? And the second part is where do you turn to for that support? Mm -hmm. uh, and to what degree are you satisfied with it? And those mm -hmm. parents who'd been unresolved on the adult attachment interview before they even had a child placed with them talked at length about how they feel unsupported. So we learned something really important about um, going forward who we might select as adopters. Not that mm -hmm. we should select them out, but that mm -hmm. we should be able to provide additional support if we know that they have this unresolved status. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we looked at was um, aspects, for example, of like the age of the child. All these children are old to get adopted. Even being four is, is, is considered old. Um, but we wondered whether there's a difference between the four through six-year-olds versus the six through eight-year-olds. Did that make a difference? And what we found was that um, overall, um, the parents, if the parents were securely attached, it didn't make a difference. There was no difference in their children and the way that they saw their children um, on our parent development interview if the, parent, uh, if the child was older. But if the parent was insecurely attached, it made a big difference. And um, the, those then saw their younger children as um, less angry, they showed less hostility, they were more reflective in talking about the child. So I often talk about this um, as, you know, kind of a King Solomon-like um, decision-making. Should we reward those insecurely attached parents by placing the younger children with them, which is what everybody wants, um, because we know it matters less for the securely attached parent. They can manage with the older children as well. I'm not sure, um, but what we know is that if we use empirical evidence to drive our decisions, will be better off and that using data like this uh, might help us understand. The same thing was true for looking at the number of caregivers. Um, the, there was a huge range. So some of the children had been in four different homes. So we counted a, a change or a caregiver from biological to um, foster care and back. And some had up to 36 different placements. Wow. But just knowing the number of placements tells you nothing about the eventual prognosis. So by, our, um, by the end of the second year, um, that got washed out. So it, it's, it's not a good um, indicator in and of itself 
attachment um, and who the, who the parent is that's looking after the child is a much um, more impressive driving force. When we look at the story sense for the children, there's, um, we'll start with the good news. Um, so we know across the board that there is no more impressive intervention we have access to than adoption. 24 seven, just the child knowing this is a permanent placement is huge. Yeah. So yeah. across the board, all of the children, regardless of the parents' um, attachment histories, took on more secure representations in their story stems. So um, an example of a story stem that comes from um, Jill Hodges' uh, story stem assessment profile, you set up, um, it uses both family figures and animal figures. So family kind of Playmobil doll figures. So one of the early stories is um, using the animal figures where you set up um, different groups of animals. You say, um, we've got a situation here where um, there's this camel family and they live over here and there's the cows and they live over here and there's these pigs who live over here. Um, and one day this little pig decides to go for a walk and he goes all the way around out into the forest, around the back over here. Uh-oh, he's lost show me and tell me what happens next. So going back to that theme of Bowlby and Ainsworth around separation, and uh, given the experiences of these children, um, we know that getting lost or being separated from the parents is um, one way of accessing their attachment system. We're looking at what the child does, both in play, in their nonverbal behavior, as well as in their words. And what we find is that we can see secure representations, which would be a child saying, oh, that's okay. Um, the little pig dropped some breadcrumbs and followed them and he um, traced it all the way back to his mommy and daddy. Mm -hmm. As compared to a child who says, oh, a crocodile came and ate the little pig. Or on his way, um, a fire started and he burned. So extreme aggression as being a strategy to try and deal with the situation um, happens very quickly for those ch children who cluster around an insecure group or show disorganized um, themes or avoiding altogether. No, the pig never got lost, right? Doesn't even mm -hmm. want to go there. So when we look at these stories and there's 12 of them that we did time one, a year later and um, two years later, um, we see that all the children start taking on more secure representations. But what we see flatline are the negative representations. So disorganized themes and themes around aggression and themes around high avoidance of the dilemmas that we presented in the stories remain the same if the parents were insecurely attached. So we learned something really important about how much easier it is to take on positive representations and kind of superimpose them on top of the bedrock of negative experiences, but it's very hard to get rid of those negative representations. And it is only in the context of a securely attached parent who perhaps allows the expression of a range of affect and can metabolize that for the child that we get rid of the extreme defenses or kind of explosions of aggression. Um, and so that's where I think Chaddock comes in because all of the work is around trying to understand um, where the children are and work through those difficult experiences. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Would you say that the, the outcome was what you expected? And were there some surprises? Um, I think there was a little bit of a surprise. Time one, actually, the children who were placed with the securely attached parents showed more defensive avoidance than the other children. Okay. And we kind of interpret that to thinking that um, they were on their guard, right? They'd been in many different caregiving contexts. I think they figured they had come to a good place and were afraid. Often when they came to see us, you know, these were four-year-olds or five-year-olds um, who didn't understand what this visit was about. And some of them were almost prepared that this was the visit that they were going to be placed with a different family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so their hypervigilance, I think, is what we saw expressed with this increase of defensive avoidance. But one year later, it came right down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that was a surprise. I think I was also surprised that within a month, that that child's internal world could be impacted by the mind of the adopter. Like given all those years of experience, how just getting placed with someone who's actually present and responsive and sensitive to them would have such an immediate impact um, was one of the other surprises that I think we had. Yes, and I'm surprised about the number of placements not having more of an impact because you said, yeah, I think in general, in the field, we think, oh my gosh, this child's had so many placements, you know, probably they're going to have a severe attachment disorder or something. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be successful in a family. And that is not what your data demonstrated. Yes. That even the eight-year-olds, you know, managed, um, you know, with the right support. I think that that's another um, kind of clear message is, you know, the need to support these families. Um, and then we have such a discrepancy between, um, not that foster carers get a lot of support, but often there's a sense that as soon as you adopt a child like this, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. uh, and that um, not having continued social work support, um, when, you know, you're really taking on some of society's most vulnerable children and, and benefiting the rest of society and that yeah we don't offer very much um way of support and it's gone oh that child's adopted they're fine you know yeah whereas from the attachment perspective it's such a very different kind of parenting you know that if you um have a child um that you have, was pregnant with you have nine months to prepare there's a physical aspect, then you have the baby, the baby is born with all kinds of features that draw in your attachment behaviors, their physicality, the bigger, you know, head to eye ratio or head to body ratio, the big eyes in their face, all kinds of things that babies have that draw mm -hmm. us in. Mm -hmm. Some of these six-year-olds, um, you know, are missing some of that, right? They might be missing front teeth and mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, their experiences, they're not always, you know, that adorable and um, compelling as, you know, as, as the infant that, um, and then for the parent to mourn the loss of not having that infant um, and then getting oriented to, you are now the parent of this child, um, you know, who's coming in with their 
you know, their own knapsack worth of difficulties and whatever difficulties you are bringing to that situation um, as well. So I think that that that's one of those places that we have to really think about. This is a different kind of parenting that we're asking these people to do. So my experience and a statement I have made, which might have to be corrected after I ask you, because you might say the data does not support that, but it is seen that um, with adoptive parents, I've sometimes said the children seem to shine a light on all the vulnerabilities that the parent might have. And sometimes they have biological children that they seem to have done fine with. And, um, but there's something about this group of children um, and how they impact the caregiver. Do you think that would be a true statement, the way I'm saying that? I think so, um, partly because I think the adopters are also quite unique in somebody who it is that puts themselves forward to take on one of these children. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that, they, that often they are people who've had difficulties of their own and are wanting to give back. Um, and so those vulnerabilities, I think, then are um, revealed in terms of what these children um, in the, in the nuanced interactions and sometimes in the blatant ones, you know, so if someone themselves have been through a foster care scenario or themselves have been adopted or other difficulties, even a divorce in the family, and then you have a child who says, you're not my real mom, right? And you've gone through your own history of not really feeling that you're the real child of your own mother or that you weren't, that there was a lot of rejection um, there that's going to spark um, some of that. So I think looking at the characteristics of the adopters in this context is really important. Um, and then there's that, the difference with biological children. And, um, you know, we often see scapegoating of the children who come from foster care adoption in those kind of contexts. And whatever um, difficulties we have with our own biological children, and get displaced, it's much easier to, to then displace it onto a child who comes from um, a care setting where you don't have that biological link. So I think that that sometimes we happens, but we often, we can see that in biological families as well who are under stress, you know, that they somehow manage with child one, two, and three, and child four is the scapegoated child and made um, to be the one that kind of carries the family pathology um, that mm -hmm. way. But I think yeah. the complexity of who it is that comes forward, you know, and that we don't kind of give them enough respect um, by saying that this is amazing because it's, it's not necessarily clear that there's a lot of us that would say, you know what, I want to give up this whole section of my life and devote to taking care of this child, opening up my home, opening up my heart, opening up my family. There's issues around what their parents might think, right, because this is now not the, perhaps the lineage that they thought they were going to um, be involved with and right. strong feelings about, you know, from that side. There's so many different complexities um, that these children, just by walking in that door, bring with them that I think is different from a biological child. What did you find about the fathers? Because you did AAIs with, with both mothers and fathers. Um, so I think the father question was, a, was an interesting one that also surprised us. Looking at the story stems, um, we had some mothers who were secure and the fathers were insecure, and some fathers that were secure and the mothers were insecure. 
And what we found with the best outcome was um, either both mother and father being secure, mother only being secure, or father only being secure. And that the worst outcome, so those three kind of clustered together, and it seemed almost not to matter which of those, both secure or just having one secure parent, um, predicted a good outcome in the child. And that the worst outcome was with neither secure. And mm -hmm. so that's another place for us in terms of policy to go, is to really look at the fathers. And that I think traditionally a lot of social work contexts were, um, would perhaps decline a couple if they thought mother wasn't secure but father seems okay still not a good bet Let, let's not um, place a child there as compared to this data very much pointing to you just need one secure parent that's that's all you need for the child um, to be um, in a much better place than had they not been adopted yes and that's good news good news yes yeah, yeah. Start so recruiting where the where, where you can find the men, you know. Right, right. So lastly, this is probably a hard question, but in looking, how, how can we support these families who are stepping forward to do the, this um, unbelievable um, task of adopting these children and parenting them and um, caring for them? Is there anything that stood out in your minds of, wow, we should really be doing this for this group of people? So it's, it's a hard one. I think some of the preparation work is really um, important um, in terms of all the, and exploring what the parents' fantasies are about what all of this is going to kind of be like. On the other hand, that no matter what the preparation was, the reality that hits, once that child comes home with them um, is often very different. So I think some of the preparation has to happen, especially the post-adoption support. And I think we're not very good at that. So that even when we have in place that every adoptive family um, should um, have access to say assessment work on what might be um, going on, there's very little follow-up. So they assess that yes, indeed, this child is having difficulties what are the interventions? And the intervention side is where we're on such thin ground. So apart from Chaddock, which is I think really geared towards some of the more extreme um, families who really the children cannot live at home. Um, that's how extreme it is. That like we should have more Chaddocks because I think there's, there's need for there to be residential facilities closer where some of the families live like, you know, Mm -hmm. Every state um, should have access. And then a milder version of Chaddock, you know, where children could still live at home, but that they would have access to some of the thinking in terms of how to intervene. Some of the careful work where the relationship is the patient. So not the parent and not the child, but that we know from an attachment perspective, that's where you're going to get the most mileage by really helping um, with the relationship. And they're exploring, I think, the way that we've been working together empirically, some of the measures that have come from developmental psychology, like the strain situation, like the adult attachment interview, like the story stems, to really mark, we then have such an advantage when we use those kinds of measures. Because what it's saying is, this set of responses we can compare, for example, with the adult attachment interview, to the 10,000 other 
AIs that are in print and have an understanding of where this person lies compared to a range of individuals. Mm -hmm. And same with the strain situation and story stems. The story stems allows you to pick that child up and put them down in 13 different places, 12 different places with each story and reveal something about how that child is thinking and feeling about these contexts. So I think that using the methodology and learning the lessons from attachment research in our clinical domains is very powerful and then really concentrating on the small, you know, kind of almost microanalytic nuances um, that we know from our baby watchers, the Tronic work, the Beatrice Beebe work, um, the George Downing work, looking at videos, is really a very fruitful place to go. Yes, yes. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for your time today and sharing about your study. Um, and I, I, I really um, appreciate it. And look forward to maybe future conversations sure. of some of your other work. So thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore attachment theory. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, for future podcasts, blogs, and training opportunities.